Hello, just getting ahead of this, as always, to remind you that this podcast contains adult language and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. In lieu of a cold open, I have a few things I need to get out of the way before the podcast starts. Uh, First of all, this podcast is not sponsored by Atlas West. I am not getting paid for talking about the game that I am talking about today, although if they want to send me some motherfucking money, like, I will totally do it. Uh, Atlas, you already own a chunk of my soul. Uh, Payment would be nice. In addition, this podcast will also spoil the following games and other stories. Persona 4. Persona 5. It will be spoiling the opera Carmen. The History of the Necronomicon by H.P. Lovecraft. The uh, Zorro franchise. uh, Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas will be spoiled. And uh, also some Robin Hood spoilers. So if you don't want to get spoiled on any of that subject matter um feel free to skip this episode and i'll catch you next week hello everyone and welcome to the newest episode of cavalcade of tales thank you for being patient with me last week as i was suffering from heat exhaustion the sun is trying to fucking kill me as always i'm your host drew the millennial with history degree and here's another kind of self-indulgent episode in a way so the backstory to this episode is with the heat exhaustion i've had a lot of time to you know just kind of try to relax play some video games and i've been replaying persona 4 and well partially because i had this whole thing go on with my playstation account the tldr um i have to replay a lot of games to get all my trophies back and so i'm running through uh p4 golden on the vita and i was thinking about persona and like it's a shin Megami tensei game similar to the episode i did earlier the mythos of devil survivor 2 it's made by the same publisher and it's actually in like the same family of games so like a lot of the like demons are the similar and a lot of the like demon versus persona and i thought it would be fun to be like okay let's go through one of the game's different personas and like talk about like the actual figures behind the persona so the way it works is in, uh, for starters, uh, I should probably clarify that I'm mainly talking for this formula that I'm about to talk about is mainly three, four, and five. I am never played the first two Persona games. The first Persona is on the PlayStation Classic, so maybe I'll get to it someday. But um, for now, I am one of those filthy fans who are just like, oh, the Persona franchise actually starts with a three. But... Uh, in three onward the way it works is you it's a dungeon crawler game which is half uh school sim half dungeon crawler where you cultivate friendships and uh, that gets you stats which makes the dungeon crawling part easier and vice versa and one of the things that's big in the game are social links which are your power through the people you know and that's what you're working on in the school part so that you can then be like okay so like this person I'm friends with is the Lover's Arcana, so when I fuse a persona that are the Lover's class, I get an experience boost, is the kind of thing. And in the franchises after 3, so 3, 4, and 5, it's always been a group of teenagers who awaken to a power of a persona, and they all have like a similar theme, and then it goes from there. For example, Persona 4, the theme is that every Persona is a traditional Japanese god because it takes place in uh, rural Inaba. However, they're all, the gods look like, um, like, Power Rangers, and like that, so they have like that kind of thing where like the color scheme and they look like Power Rangers. 
and I contemplated doing that because I am deep in the weeds of Persona 4 right now. Um, for context, for those who do know, I just saved Nanako, so I'm ready to be crying soon. But I thought it would be more fun to talk about Persona 5, not because it's potentially the game I'm playing next, either that or 3, I haven't decided, but because I like the themes of rebellion better and i thought it'd be fun to do an episode of anti-heroes because i had i had it on my wall so i'm uh, two birds with one stone so the way this episode is going to work is i will go through the main persona the starting personas of all of the main cast uh important thing to note i am omitting royal um not that it's not that I don't like what they added in Royal. In fact, when I replay Persona 5 to get my trophies back, I will be playing Persona 5 Royal because it's the more complete version of the game. There's an extra dungeon, there's an extra confidant, and it's super fun. Um, the reason I cut that content is because I have the art book is where I grabbed a lot of information for this episode, and the art book came out before Persona 5 Royal. So I'm missing some of the stuff from that. So the way this episode is actually going to be structured is I'll go person uh, persona by persona. I'll be like, this is this persona. It is This is who it's for. I will have their awakening speech because it, an interesting thing about Persona 5 is that the way that each character gets their persona, which is what they'll use to fight, is uh, kind of like the spirit of rebellion awakening within them. So that... And their persona actually talks to them. So I took snippets of the speeches and I will, it'll be like, this is the persona of so-and-so. Here's their speech. And then the next thing I have is the creator commentary. Because in the art book, you have the design of the persona and it's got like a bunch of the art because persona art is very pretty. It's very poppy, especially persona five. It's got a, you know, very like red and black aesthetic, which is, you know, my aesthetic, red, black, and white. Um, so the uh, creator, whose name is Shigenori Sojima, I took excerpts from his creator's commentary for each of the persona to help explain the direction he took with it. And then the third part of each persona is me explaining the actual background of the figure involved. And that's going to be this episode. It's a bit self-indulgent, but uh, on the press side, I got a whole bunch of fun stories to tell you guys today and so with that let's get right into it so the first persona is the one uh, that is the protagonist's persona um i don't have the uh official name of the protagonist written down i think it's like ran amamiya or something like that but his starting persona is arsene and the awakening speech is i am the pillager of twilight arsene I am the rebel's soul that resides within you. If you desire, I shall consider granting you the power to break through this crisis. Um, it's very cool. There's a lot of flames and wings, and it's got a top hat. Um, so in the creator commentary, uh, Sojima said, quote, Arsene wasn't originally intended to be a cool character in the orthodox sense. I wanted to give him a playful trickster design, but in the end I added a silk top hat and went for the cool design after all. My favorite part of Arsene's design is his face within the mask, depicted as a burning flame. I feel like Arsene's fire embodies the passion I wanted to add to the game. And so yeah, so Arsene is a reference to Arsene Lupin, who is a fictional gentleman thief created in 1905 by Maurice Leblanc. 
His debut was serialized in the magazine Je Suis Tôt, and it was known as The Arrest of Arsène Lupin on July 5th, 1905. Um, for those of us who play way too many uh, Otome games, uh, Arsène Lupin might sound familiar because that is one of the uh, love interests in the Code Realize series, which was also made into an anime, which was pretty good. Uh, Arsène Lupin is a French gentleman thief. He is... Uh, between the collections of short stories and the actual like full-length novels, Arsène Lupin is in 24 books. He's considered a literary uh, descendant to Rocalomblo, an anti-hero by Pierre-Alexis Ponson du Terrel, who was published from uh, 1857 to 1870. Um, so there's a bunch of interesting things uh, uh, that happen in Arsène Lupin's tales. Uh, there was a radioactive godstone that can either cure or mutate people in La Elle, La La Trent Circles. Uh, there was a fountain of youth story, uh, which was found in a river in England, uh, in La Demoiselle au Youvert. And then there was also the uh, courting and sort of femme fatale story of the granddaughter of Cagliostro, uh, who was an Italian count who dazzled Europe with his occult abilities, such as scrying, uh, psychic healing, and alchemy, in uh, the tale La Comtesse de Cagliostro. So he was both, um, he was, you know, very fantasy-based. Uh, LeBlanc also tried to have Lupin go against uh, the uh, Sherlock Holmes, because you figure a gentleman thief uh, is the perfect foil to a great detective, However, the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle estate is uh, very famously litigious and not happy when things use things. So in order to avoid the copyright issues, uh, LeBlanc's tales of, you know, Lupin, a young valiant Lupin versus a older, more like experienced uh, Sherlock Holmes was actually him versus Herlock Sholmes which is actually one of the more common ways to get around the copyright of having a Sherlock Holmes character, but not calling him Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so uh, it's really funny because then uh, Herlock Sholmes became a reoccurring character after his uh, debut on June 15th, 1906. He just became a regular like character. And it's really funny because again, touching back on Code Realize, which... I would suggest us watching the anime because like the three games are good, but like the first game is the best game, and that's what the anime is about. The second and third game are are tertiary stories, and then like there's a point in the second game where they're just like, remember everything that happened in the first game? Fuck that noise. We're actually going to revert it so that that story didn't actually happen, so that when you play the third game, it's based off of the story we made up in the second game, which to me feels a bit weird. But I'm not here to you know. I'm not here talking about um, Code Realize. That's probably going to be in a different episode for no reason that people will not expect. So, the next persona is Captain Kid. This is the starting persona for Ryuji Sakamoto, who is the chariot social link. The interesting thing about the way the social links work is the social link characters that are in your party once you max out their social links so you become like the super best friends their persona actually change um due to time constraints and just the amount of data i already had for this episode i did not 
cover the backstories of all of the or of any of the friggin uh secondary personae uh so what it is um i will touch upon the fact right here though that it, they start out as like these anti-heroes and then they turn into trickster gods so for example captain kid once you max out the chariot social link becomes a seiten tensei or taisei which is based off of the monkey from journey to the west but captain kid starts out yeah you made me wait quite a while you seek power correct then let us form a pact since your name has been disgraced already Rhinoch raise the flag and wreak havoc um if you can't guess captain kid is a pirate based persona uh the comparator commentary says he's unquestionably a pirate at first they only designed the body of captain kid but director hashino wanted to quote have him standing on a ship even if it's a small one end quote so he ended up riding a pirate ship the face that's drawn under the ship is something i figured ryuji himself would draw um it's it's really fun uh this captain kid uses mainly uh fighting and electric type moves uh so this one was a bit different because uh captain kid was a real person <laughs> so william kid was a scottish privateer who in the 1690s pillaged ships to protect english interests in the north america and west indies uh he revealed received his letter of mark which dubbed him a privateer uh in si- 1695 and received the ship the adventure galley which is a kind of a fun name for a ship so the greatest prize that uh kid was able to capture was known as the queda merchant a 400 ton ship which he had captured in 1698 this was his biggest and his last uh you know conquest because not only had he failed multiple times to capture targets he had been asked to, he lost a bunch of his crew and they were on the brink of mutiny before he captured the Quaidog. And also, after he had caught him, there was a change of um, in the English government against privateering and especially against Captain Kidd because he was, you know, kind of a fucking failure. The uh, so what had happened was he returned to Boston and he was arrested and immediately found guilty of piracy rather than uh, privateering and was uh, hung in 1701. The big reason Captain Kidd has such a legacy is because he hid the treasure that he received from the Quaida uh, and it went undiscovered for centuries. In fact, the Quaida wasn't found until December 13th, 2007. You heard me, 2007. The ship was hidden for 306 years. And what was ridiculous is it was 70 feet or 21 meters for my uh, non-American friends uh, off of the Catalina Island, which is south of the Dominican Republic. And the water it was found in was only like 10 to 15 feet deep. So it's amazing. Like the main like aquatic archaeologist is like, how the fuck did nobody find this in 300 years? Uh, One of the fun little facts is that a cannon from the wreck it became a permanent fixture in the Children's Museum of Indianapolis in 2011. And it's just known as the Captain Kidd's Cannon. Um, which, saying out loud, sounds a bit problematic. 
After all, that's what I call my dick. So the next persona is the persona of Morgana, who is a small cat who helps uh, act as a early navigator and transportation in certain parts. Uh, and interesting to note about this persona in particular, uh, this is one of the few characters whose persona awakens off screen, so I do not have the opening speech. Uh, but the persona is known as Zoro, and it is, you know, the starting persona of the magician social link. Once you finish the magician social link, uh, Zoro becomes Mercarius, uh, most likely a reference to Mercury, the Roman god. Uh, the creator's commentary is, quote, I designed Zoro with his contrast to Morgana in mind. Morgana has a small body, but a big attitude. But the truth is, it's not just his attitude that's big. Morgana's small body houses a strong spirit, and he is actually a magnificent being. That's what I wanted to convey by having Zoro's huge figure emerge from Zoro's tiny body. It's uh, really cool. It's kind of balloon-shaped, and one of the things I didn't write down but is touched upon in the commentary further on is, like, you kind of think that it's uh, just a big balloon putting on airs. Uh, but Zorro, uh, a little background on that, uh, Don Diego de la Vega is the masked vigilante Zorro, and he moon begins moonlighting when his wealthy landowning father called him back from university in Spain when a tyrannical... A person was put in charge of the Spanish territory of California. He's located in uh, L.A., sunny Los Angeles, California. Uh, for people who are fans of Nicole Byer, I love the way she says it. Um, the but Zorro was created in 1919 by the American pulp fiction writer Johnston McCulley. Originally, it was just supposed to be a one-shot story, The Curse of Capistrano. Uh, but due to the popularity of the 1920 film The Mask of Zorro, starring Douglas Fairbanks and Noah Beery, uh, Macaulay then wrote five more serialized stories and 57 short stories to flesh out Zorro and his world, including giving him his trademark black outfit with the half mask and the rapier. Uh, similar to the Scarlet Pimpernel, Zoro is considered one of the uh, inspirations for the masked vigilante stereotype and archetype, uh, leading to the superhero genre. It is said even that Zoro was a large inspiration for uh, characters such as uh, Batman, because you have a rich guy who uses his skills to fight tyranny. Zoro, for example, fights against the tyrant tyranny to protect the common folk and the indigenous people of California from corrupt division individuals although versed in multiple weapons he prefers to use a rapier which allows him to charge a z to mark his victims uh, his large bounty and ability to avoid uh, detection has earned him the nickname zorro which is the spanish word for fox all right our next one's a big one so this is carmen the starting persona of Anne tamaki the lover social link so this is one of the uh, female characters this is this is one of the things that gets a little problematic because one of the things that the Persona games does, which is a pro and a con. The older I get, the more I see it as a con, which is, I don't know, either part of growing up or either me just realizing that, like, maybe shit shouldn't be the way it is. It's like, I don't know, don't sexualize teenagers. But there is a lot of um, sexualization of teenagers. And in fact, um, trigger warning, uh there is a bit of a uh, subplot of sexual assault and f uh, just assault in general in the beginning of Persona 5. 
Uh, but Carmen turns into Hecate at the end of the social link, the moon, one of the moon goddesses who, uh, if you remember the Medea episode, is her patron goddess and is does uh, well with witchcraft. Her awakening uh, speech goes, My, it's taken too long. Tell me, who's going to avenge her if you don't? Forgiving him was never the option. Such is the scream from the other you that dwells within. Nothing can be solved by restraining yourself. Um, so the creator's commentary likes to go on and talks about, uh, quote, There are a lot of allusions to the original Carmen, such as the roses, the men she seduced, and the period she spent working in a cigarette factory. She's also wearing a leopard mask, which is a reference to the leopard-like personality, which is a Japanese personality type I forgot to look up. Uh, Carmen, uh, obviously, is from the uh, Carmen Opera, which is an opera written in four acts composed by George Bizet. And the libretto, which is like the text and the speaking parts of an opera, were written by Henry Michael and uh, Ludark Halevé. Uh, it was first performed on March 3rd, 1875 by the Opera Comique, uh, which, due to its breaking of conventions and uh, subject matter, completely scandalized the French audience. One of the uh, bittersweet notes to look at is the fact that Bizet died suddenly after the 33rd performance of Carmen, and within a decade of his death, uh, Carmen became an international success. Um, now we're just going to do a real quick plot synopsis of the entire opera of Carmen. So the main character of Carmen is actually a character named Don Jose, and in the beginning he and his fellow soldiers are hanging out by a cigarette factory. Uh, Carmen enters and sings about how she uh, hates the uh, untamable nature of love. She then throws a rose to Jose because he is the only man who wasn't propositioning her and being like, hey baby, what that mouth do? Um, once she leaves, we meet Michaela, who is uh, Jose's young lover, and she gives him a letter from his mother, which is essentially saying, hey, uh, you should just marry Michaela and come back home already, to which Michaela blushes and thinks off screen. However, once that happens, Carmen comes back on screen being uh, accosted by Commander Zungia. That's probably, there's probably a different way to pronounce it because this is, takes place in Spain. And I'm sure the Spanish Z is pronounced differently, but I'm going to go with Zungia because that's how I've written. But Carmen has been accused of stabbing one of her co-workers in the cigarette factory. She, uh, Jose is charged with restraining her but she gives him a seductive dance talking about a night that would ha that she and a lover would have in her special bar uh he is entranced by this and forgets to restrain her so when she is being led away by guards she's able to get away and jose is then arrested for dereliction of duty and sentenced to two months hard labor we flash cut forward and she's meeting with smuggling gypsies in her favorite bar when the uh, torador bullfighting uh, Escamillo comes in and he is like I will make Carmen mine um, one of the things to note that I am cutting out of this uh, is that this play uh, opera was written in the 1800s so it is uh, they use a lot of the pejorative term for gyp uh, Roman women gypsies in this play saying that she is a young gypsy woman and that's why she is seducing men and committing crimes which is very problematic so Escamillo leaves and then uh, there are smugglers there and they're just like, we need to bounce with our stolen goods because we're criminals. And Carmen's like, I am waiting for Jose. 
who then arrives. They have a song and dance together, and the bugle rings, saying that it's time for Jose to return to the barracks. And Carmen's like, if you loved me, you wouldn't leave. And he's like, I love you, but I must go. And it's like very Spanish soap opera, and I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody with my shitty Spanish accents. Uh, But then Commander Zynga enters, looking because he's after Carmen, who has been on the lam for two months. And he tries to bring her in. And the smugglers and Jose beat him up and tie him up. So Jose is now a deserter and a traitor. So he has to join the smugglers. We flash cut again. And Carmen and Jose are fighting because she has grown bored with him. And she said, you just to go back to your mama. We are done here. And he's like, no, I love you. Here's a ring to prove my love to you. And she's just like, you're a silly fucking man and I'm bored. So the smugglers leave Jose in charge of guarding the women and the loot. And in enters Escamillo. Uh, Jose fires at him and apologizes because Escamillo is a famous torador. And then becomes incredibly jealous when Escamillo says he is there for Carmen. The two scuffle and are broken up by... Blah, 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 Michaela, who has been brought to uh, save Jose from Carmen and to bring him back home to his mother. Uh, she is able only to get him to leave by lying to him, saying his mother is dying, but he vows to return for Carmen. The final act begins at one of Escamillo's bullfights, which he has invited Carmen and the gypsies to. And at the beginning, there is a lovely song and dance about Carmen and Escamillo declaring their love for each other. The smugglers are like, hey, Carmen, Jose's here. You better fucking watch out. He's fucking crazy. Uh, you know, men get crazy when their egos are bruised, and Carmen's like, I am not afraid. So she goes and meets him, and he's like, Carmen, back to me, I love you. And she's like, I told you I'm bored with you, I am with Escamillo now. And he's like, but I love you, and she's like, your love means nothing to me. And she throws the ring that he gave her to the dirt. And then something inside Jose snaps. So when Carmen turns around to return to the bullfight, he stabs her in the back. And then the opera ends with him carrying the dead corpse of Carmen, saying that love drove him to madness, and madness took away his love. And that is a very, very succinct talk of the plot of the opera Carmen. So our next persona is uh, Goemon, which is the initial persona of Yusuke Kitagawa, who is the Emperor Social Link. Upon maxing out the Emperor Social Link, he turns into Kami Susano who is one of the moon the moon deities of Shintoism. Um, fun little side note, uh, Yusuke Kitagawa is voiced by Matt Mercer. Um, and for those who like playing little fun games at home, uh, there was this thing me and my buddies in college used to do, which was called your Mercer score. So Matt Mercer is an incredibly prolific voice actor, and whether it be video games or uh, anime and other cartoons. Um, so he's also very famous, the, the dungeon master for Critical Role, in some seasons what you can do is you can go to his imdb page and your mercer score is you go through and you count how many different things that you have either played or watched essentially what media have you consumed that matt mercer has spoken in and the number is your mercer score so it's a fun little game for home so the awakening speech for Goemon is, Have you finally come to your senses? How foolishly you averted your eyes to the truth? A deplorable imitation indeed. Best you part from that aspect of yourself. 
The world is full of beauty and vice. It is time for you to teach people which is which. Um, it's a really fun one because this is this whole this whole arc because the first arc has to do with a high school teacher who is abusing his students both physically and sexually, and that's where you get the original characters. You get the protagonists Ryuji, Morgana, and Anne, and that's kind of like your base set and you know learning the game. So your first like stranger you help is this art student who's being uh, taken advantage of by his art teacher who is publishing his students' works under his name. So the creator commentary for this is, Goemon's design is the result of infusing the Kabuki Ishikawa Goemon with Yusuke's psychedelic art style. I had no trouble coming up with the concept for the design, but I had a hard time picking the right colors and patterns. I had a lot of discussions with my coworkers about what to do and ended up with this complex and detailed design. So this character of uh, Ishikawa Goemon is a bit complex because he is similar to a f another character that we'll touch upon later, where there, well, he's actually a bit different because th there is probably a real man named Ishikawa Goemon because it comes up in history. However, he has become highly mythologized and folklorized, so there is it's hard to tell what is actually him and what is just like been made up for various theaters so he is a legendary japanese outlaw who is uh immortalized in kabuki theater as an anti-hero thief who stole gold and other trinkets from nobility to give to the poor so it's very hazy because he's become such a folk hero how the actual story went so one account the one I'm going to use for this story, is that he was born in 1558 as Sanada Kuranoshin. When his father, who is potentially named Ishikawa Akashi, was killed by the shogunate in 1573, the 15-year-old swore revenge and stuttered under Momichi Sendayu. However, after training for some time, he was forced to flee after being found in bed with one of Sendayu's mistresses, uh, stealing a legendary sword when he left. One of the main things that can be agreed upon is that he was publicly executed and boiled to death with his son. However, there's a couple different versions, like the sort of like the inspiration for why he did it varies. In Kabuki theater, the reason he was he tried to assassinate the individual that he assassinates is because he killed his father. In the real versions, there's a few different ver uh, but the one thing that is you know uniform is that he attempted to assassinate the Shingoku period warlord Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Uh, in one account, uh, he's just after Hideyoshi because he's a despot and wants to try to help the little people, uh, but fails. In a different account, uh, he had infiltrated Fushimi Castle to avenge the death of his wife Otaki and the kidnapping of his young son, Gobei. However, during the infiltration, he knocked a bell off of a table, which alerted the guards. Uh, on October 8th, Goemon and his son Gobei were sentenced to death by being boiled alive in a pot by a river. Goemon was able to save his son, however, by holding him high above his head as the heat ravaged his own body, and as a uh, recognition of his bravery and his uh, love for his son, Actually, Gobei, in this version of the tale, is spared. In the version of the story where Hideyoshi is a despot, uh, there's a very different ending, 
where uh, Goemon uh, kills his son first by plunging him into the boiling water before he dies so that his son doesn't have to live in a world where Hideyoshi is able to do as he pleases, which is uh, considerably darker. <laughs> and now for an ad break. Um, hey guys, I have a Patreon, um, as always. Uh, you can support the podcast fiduciarily at patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales. For $5 a month, you can ask questions that I will answer live on air. You can get uh, access to episodes early. And also, you will be able to help uh, create a thriving Discord community uh, where we all get to talk about uh, movies and games and stories and probably make a bunch of references to 80s and 90s television. Uh, and join the We Don't Talk About Book Club book club. As a reminder, the book for September is Romeo and or Juliet, a choose-your-own-adventure based off of Shakespearean myth. Um, it's a very fun, interesting little read, and uh, I've had a lot of fun uh, just every now and again when I've got a few minutes, I just go through and see how far it can take me. So far, I've had Juliet end up being a pirate. I have accidentally done the entire plot of Romeo and Juliet. I've also had uh, Romeo get really into eating an egg sandwich. Uh, so yeah, if you want to learn more, you can uh, support me on the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash tales. And now, back to the episode. So the next character we meet is uh, a character named Makoto uh, Nijima, and her big thing is that she suspects that uh, our students are up to something, and she sort of uh, blackmails us, the, the protagonist, to helping her by getting blackmailed herself by a crime boss and she awakens to her persona Johanna who then transforms into a knot when you max out her priestess social link so Johanna is very interesting because she is a just a straight up motorcycle but her awakening speech goes have you decided to tread the path of strife you have finally found your own justice please never lose sight of it again this memorial day marks your graduation from your false self um johanna's one of my favorite um sort of like transformations because i it's you know just seeing like the straight lace student go like a little bit fucking nuts is like always the best thing it's the epitome of that meme where it's like aren't you just tired of being nice all the time don't you just want to go fucking crazy um in a personal discussion um this is the final member of my party uh, traditionally the way I build my team in Persona 5 is it's the protagonist Ryuji on and Makoto because I can get a there's a good range of skills on learns all the healing skills uh, Makoto is a good you know fighter with uh, uses a nuclear option and then I can kind of fill in less gaps with the main character who can use a bunch of different skills um, but the creator's co commentary is Johanna's design originates from a conversation I was having with Hoshino about motorcycles. I was talking about how a motorcycle's speed and its association with young people were a perfect fit for the themes of this game. Hoshino suggests, quote, why don't you make Johanna a motorcycle, end quote. Hence, the current design. So the story behind uh, Johanna is a little bit odd. Um, it's touched upon in a part of the creator's commentary I didn't bring in, which has to do with a hole behind her seat. Because this is Pope Joan. So Pope Joan was a folkloric pope who served only a couple years as pope before she gave birth during a live procession and was found out to be female and then was 
either murdered or died of natural causes shortly after. Uh, there is a urban legend that uh, one, after this, there was a special chair made for the Pope that had like a hole in the bottom so that when a Pope would sit, you'd be able to tell the Pope was male because like his dick and balls would fall out. Um, the chair and Pope Joan are not are widely accepted to be just not real. They're fictional. Um, there is a funny little thing where in the 16th century, uh, the Siena Cathedral had a bust of Pope Joan. However, the uh, within a few years in the 1600s, it was uh, removed due to protests. So the myth of a female pope emerged uh, from the chronicle of Jean de Malay around uh, 1250. Uh, which spoke uh, very ambiguously about a female pope who ruled for a couple of years. But we get most of her story from Martin of Opava's Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorium, which was written later in the 12th, 13th century. So in Martin's account, the female pope was baptized as John Anglicus of Mainz, and that she joined the church to follow her lover and then became pope in the middle of the 9th century. Uh, she only served for two years, gave birth, and then was subsequently removed. Uh, Pope Joan was also used as a defense for the Welsh uh, uh, infidel, not infidel, that's not the word I want, uh, rabble-rouser, Walter Brute, who claimed that the Pope was the Antichrist in 1931, and she was used as a... is 1391? <laughs> 1931, no. Uh, however, uh, Protestant scholar... David Blondell was the first person who showed without a doubt that there was no such thing as a Pope Joe. Our next character is the Necronomicon, which is the starting persona of Futaba Sakura, who is the hermit social link. Uh, this is an interesting point in the game because you kind of you've you're getting a hang of it. And then your the guy you're staying with's adopted daughter is figures out who you are and is like, I want you to steal my heart because I'm depressed. And then, you know, through the growth and power of friendship, she becomes better. So the Necronomicon's awakening speech is, What denies you is an illusion, a curse put upon you by heartless. You knew from the very beginning, and yet you cowered in fear. Will you die as you are told? Who will you bay? Who will you obey? Curse words spat out by a seething illusion, or the truth written within your own soul? So the Necronomicon is a very interesting one because it's not a combat persona. It is actually the, um, in persona games, usually in like the mid range, you all of a sudden get the character who is like the be your navigation person who's like, this is the way you can go through the dungeon. Like, learn skills like, this is where treasure is in the dungeon, and this is where the enemies are, and this is the the, the elemental affinities the enemy is weak to. So the greater commentary for this is a lot one, because ne the Necronomicon is a book, traditionally. However, the persona is shaped like a UFO. Uh, quote, the Necronomicon's got something of a wild design. That being said, there's a reason I designed Futaba's persona as a UFO. Necronomicon is originally a book of sorcery, but in Futaba's mind, that equates to ideals she believes are true, or ideas that can turn the world upside down. For instance, grand conspiracies or the Akashic Records. Skipping ahead a little bit, I knew the UFO by itself had nothing to do remind you of the actual Necronomicon, so I added elements of the classic Necronomicon to the gargoyle sitting on top. 
The hieroglyphs written inside and around the UFO are a mixture of things that Futaba believes represent the truth about this world. High-tech geeky symbols, the Nazca lines, the Voyager golden record, and DNA patterns. Um, so this was quite the fucking rabbit hole to fall down, because as I was looking at the histories of all these things, um, there was like a double history for this one. So the Necronomicons was first used in 1924 in an H.P. Lovecraft short story known as The Hound. Um, Lovecraft uh, mentioned the author of the Necronomicon in a story the year before, but the debut was in The Hound. Uh, it took very quickly, and a lot of other horror writers uh, loved using it, like August Derelith and Clark Ashton Smith. But uh, Lovecraft was super cool when people used the Necronomicon, saying that horror needed a common illusion built up on a background of evil verisimilitude. Uh, in uh, 1927, Lovecraft wrote a pseudo-history of the Necronomicon that wasn't published until uh, 1938, which was after his death. Uh, this was the awkward part of my research, because after finding out all this stuff, I then had to dive deeper into the 1200-year history of a book that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, one thing to note before I start going through this is the fact that um, there will be a, a one part where I will be using a description of the author, which is problematic. That is because H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, although a father of certain types of weird horror, uh, was a bit problematic, and when you are in the 1920s and your contemporaries are saying you're a bit racist and xenophobic and it's a bit fucked up, you're a bit fucked up. So, the story is, the book is called Al-Zahif, which is based off the Arabic term for the sound of nocturnal insects supposed to be the howling of demons. Uh, this terminology is supposed to be an allusion to the diabolic legend of the demon lord Beelzebub, who is known as the Lord of the Flies, and also um, the best demon in the Obey uh, dating sim app on your phone, and I will be taking no questions or comments or uh, arguments at this time. So, according to the uh, story, uh, the author, Abdul Ahalrzad, was a, quote, half-crazed Arab. There's that problematic part poking out who worshipped the uh, Lovecraftian deities Yog sahoth and Cthulhu in the 1700s common era. Uh, after visiting the ruins of Babylon, the subterranean secrets of Memphis, Egypt, and the empty quartet of Arabia, uh, he penned the Al-Zahif before his death in 738, where he was, quote, seized by an invisible monster in broad daylight and devoured horribly before a large number of fright-frozen witnesses. Uh, in 1950, the text was translated into Greek and gained the name Necronomicon uh, by Theodorus Pphilides from Constantinople. However, it was repressed and uh, burned by Patriarch Michael in 1050, which was nine years before the uh, real Patriarch Michael died. Uh, one of the interesting things Lovecraft does is he weaves together real like historical figures and fake people. So, like, Abdul Ahalrazad and Theodorus Philides, not real. But Patriarch Michael was real. And then, so, the book lied dormant in until it was translated from Greek to Latin in 1228 by Olas uh, Wormius. 
One of the issues with this account, however, is that Olas Wormius was an actual Dana scholar who wouldn't be born for another 350 years, living in the 1580s. Uh, but in, for the purposes of Lovecraft's story, he translated the Necronomicon in the 1200s. Uh, Pope Gregory IX would then banned the texts in 1232, and they remained underground and hidden until the 16th century, when they began being reprinted again in Italy. And the Elizabethan magician John Dee, who famously was like an astronomer and mathematician for Queen Elizabeth, attempted to translate the text into English. However, the only fragments of the text remains, and he did not fully finish it, and it did not get widely printed in English. Uh, one of the lax instant Greek copies of the text was burned in a man's house in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692, uh, alleging that, that the Necronomicon was part of the crossfire and damage of the Salem witch trials. Um, it is later said that most versions of the Necronomicon found in other versions of the uh, Lovecraft stories are either really ancient Greek versions or a couple of Latin versions. Our next persona, the penultimate one, is known as Milady, uh, who turns into Ashtarte, who is a sort of a progenitor uh, love goddess to like Ishtar and uh, Aphrodite. So this character, is this is the starting persona of Haru Okomura, the Empress social link. Uh, at this point in the story, you've uh, there was a slight falling out between two characters, and she sort of comes on as like a sort of like second faction to try to mess with people. Uh, but it's her dad that you're trying to stop, and um, this is one of the few times where things get awkward, and uh, one of the people whose life you change uh, dies. Uh, her awakening speech is, I see you finally made up your mind, my dear fated princess. Freedom for you must stem from betrayal. If you still yearn for it now, then you must not err. Now tell me, who shall you betray? This one is really interesting because the uh, milady is, uh, for starters, it's not like milady m apostrophe lady, like some fedora wearing neckbeard shit. This is M-I-L-A-D-Y, like Milady. Um, so the creator commentary like touches upon this a bit. Like regarding Haru's character design, I modeled her a thief after outfit after the Three Musketeers. Once I decided her persona, Milady, and then skipping out a little bit, Milady isn't a character that's known to Japanese audiences. So I plan to present her alongside Haru's design, kind of giving the fact that it's Milady and the Three Musketeers. I envisioned Milady as a two-sided character who approached her opponent under a gentle, innocent facade, all the while pulling the strings so she could rise to the top. I initially drew her having all kinds of weapons to use as assassination devices, but the weapons weren't really hidden in the design, and the concept of assassination devices felt more Chinese than European. So this one was a little weird because, like, it's... I had to do a lot of digging... So this is based off Milady de Winter, who is one of the main antagonists of The Three Musketeers, written by Alexandre Dumas in 1844. She acts as a spy in the 1625 French under the employ of a Cardinal Richelieu. She is also the widow of Baron Sheffield, who mysteriously died within a matter of hours, leaving her with the Lord de Winter's only male heir. Alright, so here's a... Uh, the thing with Dumas is that his fucking books are massive. 
So here is the, uh, once again, similar to Carbon, here is the TLDR of the entire uh, Milady arc in The Three Musketeers. So Milady is discovered to be infatuated with the Comte de Wardes, and D'Artagnan uh, is uh, a bit jealous, and he forges a response and arranges a meeting with uh, Milady, disguised as de Ward. So Milady meets with him and gives him a sapphire and diamond ring and tells him that she can have Dardigan killed because he wounded the real DeWard in a duel. And she also let her brother, her brother-in-law, rather, uh, live in a separate duel, which made it so that she was not getting the inheritance from Baron Sheffield because of being the mother of his young son. Uh, Dardigan then reveals, he's like, uh, you just said you could kill me and then they get into like a small like altercation where uh, he rips her shirt revealing her florally brand uh which actually is means that she is a different the uh one of the other musketeers athos's allegedly dead wife uh d'artagnan rather goes and proves to athos that his wife is still alive by showing him the sapphire and uh, ring that he had given her so Milady is like, okay, well, D'Artagnan needs to die. So she makes an arrangement with Cardinal Richelieu where she will assassinate the Duke of Buckingham in exchange for her absolving of any future crimes and so that he could arrange for the murder of D'Artagnan. Athos, however, is able to corner Milady and she does escape to carry out the Buckingham's assassination. However, she loses the piece of paper with the Cardinal's pardon. Uh, Athos tells the uh, Lord de Winter, uh, Sheffield's older brother, that he was Milady's first husband, which would nullify her marriage to her brother, and that they would try to warn Buckingham of his the plot to assassinate him. Now, the Three Musketeers is a fictionalized account of real events, so the Duke of Buckingham was actually murdered by John Felton. However, the way it works in the story is John Felton is put in charge of watching Milady after uh, she gets to the Duke of Buckingham's estate and he locks her up in suspicion of her being the one trying to kill him. So what she does is she says, well, I'm just a sweet little Puritan girl, and the reason I'm being locked up is because I won't sleep with the Duke, which uh, enrages John Felton, who's already mad because like his pay's being cut and he's a Puritan. So like they're always got to stick up their ass. Like, no offense to Puritans, but like a little offense to Puritans. Uh, so John Felton then kills the actual Duke of Buckingham. She then is able to flee to France and then, uh, just for good measure, kills D'Artagnan's lover. So the musketeers go and them and Lord de Winter corner her in Lillet, where they accuse her of poisoning Sheffield, lying to Athos because she hid that she was a criminal from him when they got married and also for a conspiracy to assassinate the English Duke. And she's just like, oh, if I was a criminal, you better have proof outsteps the executioner of Lilla, who reveals that he is the one who gave her the Fleur de Lis brand because she was originally betrothed to his brother, who was a priest. However, she abandoned him uh, and went to marry Athos instead, and the priest killed himself. So he was able to prove that he had branded her for uh, for crimes, and she was then promptly executed and lost her head, which is a part of the reason why Milady is just, uh, like, the design for Milady. She doesn't actually have a head. She's just holding one of those, like, opera masks up. And that's her face. 
So the final persona in the group is the persona of Goro Akechi, who is the justice social link. His name is Robin Hood. Uh, at this point in the story, you meet Akechi, who is a uh, friggin' detective who's actually trying to hunt you down. And then, um, again, this whole podcast is spoilers for Persona 5. Uh, it turns out he's a traitor and that he's actually working with the main guy, like the main bad guy. And he was sent to infiltrate your group to find out the weaknesses. But his, so he doesn't have like a persona transformation when you reach his max social link. Instead, when you find out he's the traitor, that's when his persona turns to Loki. Who, I don't need to go over Loki, everybody knows fucking Loki. Uh, Because he's using a false persona when he's fighting alongside you, and that uh, he awoken to Loki way before the events of the game, there is no awakening commentary, but I do have creator commentary. Quote, The design was meant to represent a Superman-like hero who is the manifestation of justice. It also reflects Akechi's heroism. Much like Akechi, he has his logo. Uh, much like Akechi has his logo on the attaché case he carries, the R H mark of Robin Hood is meant to display his assertiveness. Rather than him doing good deeds for the benefit of society, it is meant to have more of a "watch me do good" kind of feel to it. So Robin Hood's a really interesting figure because he is a English folkloric hero who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. He is your classic version of this and he has been so many different things to so many different people it is you could do entire podcasts just trying to cover the history of robin hood so what i have is just a very small synopsis here so he was an accomplished swordsman and archer in the early tales he was of a class of people known as yeomen who were about, like, middle class, so they, like, managed land and, like, helped manage, uh, like, servants, but a big thing was that they were longbow, uh, they were very skilled with longbow combat, including being a massive part of the longbow combatants in the beginning parts of the Hundred Years' War, when England was starting to do okay, but then everything goes to shit in the Hundred Years' War, is just a fucking nightmare of a mess. Uh, however, in more recent tales, there is a there are versions of Robin Hood was a, like who was a noble, and he went off to crusade under Richard the Lionhearted, and then his lands were stolen from him by the sheriff of Nottingham. So originally, he was just sort of like his own thing. Uh, however, he he changed over time as the folkloric tradition changed, and so did hit the cast of characters. So the first clear reference to Robin Hood is an alliterative poem called Piers Plowman, written in the 1370s. However, the earliest surviving copy of the narrative are from the late 15th century, early 16th century. So we're talking late 1600s. No, late 1400s, early 1500s. So these were Robin's characters kind of flushed out, where he has a strong devotion to the Virgin Mary. He has a lot of anti-clericalism. Uh... And he has a lot of skill as an archer. He has a special regard for women and a really dislike to the sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, as the, the stories progress, we also he gained a entourage known as his band of merry men. He, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham, is later uh, aligned to uh, Prince John, who was meant to usurp Richard the Lionheart. 
and therefore you have this sort of beginning dialogue of Robin Hood uh, swears fealty to Richard the Lionheart, and that's why he's constantly messing with Sheriff Nottingham, the Sheriff of Nottingham, because then it undermines uh, Prince John's attempts to take over England. And then also later on, uh, he developed the love interest of Maid Marian. Um, a extra tiny note I threw at the end of this, because I don't know a lot of Robin Hood stories. I mean, other than the uh, Walt Disney classic where he was a fox that everybody wanted to fuck. Uh, so I did cheat a tiny bit and I went into fake grand order to see if the Robin Hood character in there had anything. And, uh, the Robin Hood character in there talks about how it is one of the many who claimed the moniker of Robin Hood. And according to the, the version, he was killed in Kirkless monastery due to being betrayed by an abbess. However, I am not actually sure how Robin Hood died. That's, I don't know if you Robin Hood had a death, which is kind of interesting. But that is this week's show. There are nine anti-heroes, well, eight anti-heroes in a book. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was one of the more self-indulgent ones. Um, from the way I kind of understand how these kind of work is that it's more of a the framework people don't necessarily care about, but they the stories are fun. Uh, but yeah, I hope you guys like this episode. I have a couple things, ideas like a couple things on the docket for next week's idea so i haven't chosen which one yet uh but uh it's officially fall in new england so your bitch is uh thriving it's it went from like 80 to 50 and there's pumpkin everywhere so like your bitch is thriving and there should be no issues getting episodes out on time now uh but yeah i hope you like this episode um if you do uh please rate it five stars on the podcatcher of your choice and uh, if you have any questions or comments for me, you can follow me uh, either uh, Instagram or TikTok at White Trash Historian. And if you wish to help the podcast financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales. I'll talk to you all next week. All right. Bye.